And we are studying the book of James. If you have grabbed a Bible, then you can turn to page 1012. I want to welcome you from, uh, again from our church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's always a joy for uh, us to come and worship with you and, and serve with you during this week. I'm grateful that my wife was able to come. This is Kay up front here, two of my four. Uh, a couple of my boys are here also with our team, and we are most, most grateful uh, to be with you this week. And... Um, <clears throat> I was reflecting as Tanner was reflecting uh, on the many years that uh, uh, we had been thinking and praying about church planting. I, I sort of reckon it to Psalm 51, you know, where, you know, you were known before your birth, you know, while you were still in the womb of a church plant. I knew you and uh, I, I've been praying for you for for so many years and just to see uh, just Tanner and John and the desire that, that God put in their hearts. I, I honestly think that the greater desire of Tanner and John were to get as close to the Boston Celtics as possible. That was, I think, the first desire. And then some of the other teams that I won't mention. But then, of course, God led them to Medford. And it just seemed like a divine fit for them to be here. And uh, I just, when I saw that picture of the Easter service here, and wow, God is so good. And you, you are an instrumental part of a huge vision, not just for Medford, but for the gospel to be spread just all over New England and, and throughout the world. So, so God be praised. And, um, you know, if you, if you heard what Tanner was saying, he was using words to try to convince you to like me. And so I appreciate that. And he was trying to, to use enough words so that you would be convinced that you can trust what I'm about to share from the Bible today. And, and so by illustration, Tanner really, you know, helped us to think about the power of words. Words are incredibly powerful. They can be powerful tools or they can be powerful weapons. They can be incredibly useful. They can be incredibly destructive. And, and one of the reasons why we know that we were made in God's image is because of our ability to communicate. Now, our God is awesome, and we just sang some great songs exalting the awesomeness of our God. And we, there's so many incredible attributes about God. We can think about his, you know, his, his, his almighty strength. We can think about his, his infinite mercy. We can think about his everlasting love. But well, one of the most powerful characteristics of God is his ability to communicate. The word of God is powerful. I mean, God spoke Bam! And everything came into existence. God spoke, and he gave us a perfect book that reveals himself to us. I mean, the word of God is incredible, and it is powerful. And in our words, then, are given to us as a gift from God, and the ability for us to communicate is given to us from God so that we might simply reflect him in his glory. 
You're made in God's image. And one of the reasons why you know that is because you have the ability to speak love, to build each other up, to be gracious, and, and to encourage one another. Now, at the same time, we know that our words can be destructive. And so this is why the book of James comes into play. And I just think it's great that you're studying the book of James. I mean, what, a, what an amazingly helpful letter that, that we've been given by God to help us think through how to live out our faith in the normality of, uh, of our life. And, and James comes along and, and he says to us that, that our words reveal what's going on in our hearts. But, but we honestly, I, I think, need to sort of put a microscope to our hearts and examine them and ask ourselves the question as to what's inside. Because if, in fact, our speech reveals our faith, the book of James is all about what we do is a revelation of what we believe. If our speech reveals our faith, then what's being revealed? I mean, day in and day out, how you talk does that prove that you have faith in God or, or does it doubt that God really cares about the things that you say or the things that you do? I mean, do you really believe that your faith, uh, that your words reveal your faith? And, and then if so, how can then you communicate in such a way that you become redemptive? Because this is why, as Christians, we exist. We exist to bring glory to God, and we exist to be redemptive for everything that Christ died for. And, and so James, he, he's going to come along, and he's going to help us to, to think about how true faith can work itself out. And, and true faith does, in fact, work itself out if our desires are for God, and to love our neighbor more than just for our own selfishness or selfish ambition or gain. So, so James says that, that, that what happens is that from the inside out, our behaviors and our emotions flow. And I want you to think about it uh, sort of this way. If you can imagine a tree... And, the, and below the surface of the tree, you know, in, in, the, in the area of, of the roots, there are, uh, in the innermost part of, of us, there are desires and there are values. All right. Now, from those desires found at the deepest level of your being, those desires and those values, they form beliefs when they're either mixed with truth or they're mixed with air. Whatever you're going to do to add to those desires or to those values, they're going to form belief. Now, once you have formed a belief, those beliefs translate in forming thoughts which result in choices, all right? So our desires, our values form our beliefs, our beliefs form our thoughts, and they form our choices. 
And then from our thoughts and our choices will come our behaviors and our affections or emotions. I'll use the word affections because it's a little bit more than just an emotion. It really has something that's tied to our hearts. But, but, but our behaviors and, and our affections, they can either be godly or they can be ungodly. But all of that depends on what our thoughts are, what our choices are, which depend on what we believe, which depends on what we desire and what we value. And you've been learning about this in your study in James. And, and so a one way to summarize the entire book of James is to simply say, what I believe will result in what I do. Or today, what I believe will result in what I say. And we can see this, you know, beginning in chapter 1 of James, if, if you recall, if you were here, that even in our trials, what we desire and what we believe about the real difficult uh, uh, events in our life will determine how we think, how we behave, and how we feel about them. Remember what, what James said? Count it all what? Joy, good, in your trials. How can that be? Because when I'm really struggling, often I don't feel joy. How can I experience joy in that? All right, let's go back to the very basis. What do I desire? If my desire for God is greater than just wanting to have a life of ease and to be protected from difficulties, if my desire is to obey God and that desire is greater, then that will form a belief if I mix it with truth and my belief will say to me, suffering's okay, trials are okay, they'll come, they're there for a reason, they test your faith. Hey, why don't you use this difficult circumstance to prove who you are? Now, with that, I can choose. You know what? Okay, bring it on. With God's grace, I'm going to joyfully accept this trial in my life. All right, so that's how it can work. Or I can be utterly miserable and hate my life if, in fact, that's what my mind is telling me because my beliefs say I don't want hard times. I don't want it to be difficult. Because my desire then would be ultimately for me, for my own self, rather than for me to bring glory to God. And now, so then James says, okay, what you believe is crucial. And, and, and the purity of your faith, that is instrumental. Now imagine if you're kind of wish-washy about your beliefs. Imagine if you just didn't really know God's word or, or have a deep faith in God. What if you were unstable in what you really felt or believed? All right, well then James says, man, an unstable man, he's in trouble. Because he can go this way or that way. He's like a ship without a rudder. That's why he's saying we've got to be stable. We've got to be firm. We've got to know. And all of that begins with what we desire. What we value the most. A real practical example is found in chapter 2 of James when he talks about wealth. So what do you really, you know, think about money? James says, now, if your desire, if your value is to honor wealth, it's going to come out in your actions. Remember studying that? 
Because if, if you really value money, if you really value wealth, then when there's a rich person and a poor person, it's going to be evident because you're going to tend to have a bias or to have favoritism upon the rich. You look at two people, one wealthy, one not. And what immediately comes to mind? What is your evaluation? If your evaluation is, wow, this person must have done something right, this person is to be honored because he or she is wealthy, then you have then informed yourself of what you really value to where James says, don't do that. Be careful about favoritism. So in in all of these ways, the purity of our faith mixed with the truth of God's word can lead to godly behaviors and godly affections that James simply calls works. And, and so sometimes people are a little confused because they say, James says, faith without works is dead and, and you have to have works? Absolutely! Because the works are the revelation of our faith. True faith in God will work itself out in godliness. So if what I believe results in what I do, how does that affect my tongue? But what James is saying now in chapter 3 is that the same principle simply works itself out. And really the point of James 3, the first 12 verses, is that what I believe about communication, what I believe about this gift of being able to speak is is a result, will result in in how I I share my words uh, with others. Or that's just another way of saying what I believe will result in what I do. And now, James is going to, he's going to take these 12 verses, and he's going to take, okay, the first two, and he's going to talk about leaders in the church, and then he's going to transition and just talk about everybody else in the church, because it's all important uh, in, in how we speak. But understanding that, that the church has a good sense of gospel order, he's going to begin by saying that, that it is imperative for the leaders of the church, the teachers of the church, to have both a controlled and a gracious tongue. I mean, it's absolutely essential that the pastors of the church lead by example. And once then we see that that a controlled and a gracious tongue characterizes the leaders of the church, then we'll see how a controlled and a gracious tongue is essential in speaking life into one another. So what John shared from Proverbs was excellent because if you recall, one of the verses we read today was both life and death are found here in our mouths. And, and, and what I want you to, to leave is, is having this understanding that every time you open up your mouth, you have two choices. I can speak life into you or I can speak death towards you. I can speak life or I can speak death. The words that we use are that powerful. All right, so let's begin in James chapter 3, in verse 1, learning that a controlled and a gracious tongue is essential for the teachers. Here's how he says it. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, that we who teach will be judged 
with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man or a complete man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, uh, James understood that the person who was designated the teacher had a significant role or authority in the life of those that he taught. James was a Jew, and coming from a Jewish system or a Jewish culture, he grew up understanding that the rabbi was one of the most influential persons in the entire community. I mean, the voice of the rabbi was even stronger than the voice of a parent. And so James understood just the the the, the, the essential uh, authoritative nature of a teacher's position. But even in the New Testament church, James understood because he was one of the, the early pastors. He was one of the most influential teachers in the early church. We see that in the book of, of Acts. As a matter of fact, of all of the gifts that God has given to the church, and he has given apostles, and he has given prophets, he, he has given evangelists, he has given the pastor-teacher that role, pastor-teacher, to be the one role that maintains itself in the church for as long as the church exists. And the pastor-teacher has been given, according to Ephesians chapter 4, for the equipping of you, the saints, so that you might do the work of the ministry, for the building up of the entire body of Christ so that you would grow up and become a mature man. That you would grow up and begin to imitate Christ so that the teacher becomes an essential factor in your spiritual growth and development. Well, okay then. Obviously then, uh, the teacher needs to be able to control his tongue. And, And unfortunately, even in the New Testament, we see where false teachers began to creep into the church. And false teachers began to be, be very destructive with their tongue, whether they were teaching false doctrine or, or whether they were, you know, promoting themselves, whether, whether they were just sort of in it for the, the applause or the popularity or, or even sometimes they were there just for financial gain. A bad teacher can ruin a congregation in all of these ways. Because, you know, just sort of by design, church members want to trust their pastors, right? I mean, you hope that the men who stand before you and, and teach God's word are, are men who are trustworthy. And, and so they need to be humble men who have submitted themselves to Christ and to the scriptures. And then they need to, to lead by example. As a matter of fact, in the Bible... There is a a list of characteristics for anyone who desires to be a pastor. And, and, And the first thing it says is that this man needs to be above reproach. And that, that means that, that there, there, there can't be anything that's taking place in his life where someone from the church would, stay, would be able to stand up and say, no, I have this against this man. He is not who he says. And not that he's perfect, but I know that he is living a hypocritical life. That there is sin, that there is evil in his life, and it is evident, and he's not dealing with it. And so this whole idea of being above reproach sort of, sort of is the umbrella of all the other important characteristics of the pastor. He has to be a man who can be trusted before we would commend him to teach the word 
of God. And, and so, you know, as a, a church planter, uh, I, I have seen a lot of different types of, of church plants. And, and often what happens is, you know, there'll just be a guy and, and he, he gets this desire from God and, and he says, I'm going to go plant a church. And off he goes. And, and we call that sort of the parachute method of church planting, where these guys just sort of parachute in from somewhere, and uh, they believe, all right, I'm here, God's called me here, and, and let me plant a church. And, and, and although I'm sure their intentions are great, they often fail, because it's just not that easy. And I know, as I was reading this, and, and I was thinking about, you know, uh, um, Tanner and, and John, and, and now John, and uh, the elders that you've been blessed with, I began to think back many, many years. So they've been here four years. The church has been in existence in almost four years. But their preparation started eight, nine years ago. And, and, and this is when I began to know Tanner. And, and this is when I had the opportunity to begin for not just a few weeks, but for years to try to instill in his mind, in his heart, what it means to be a teacher who is given the responsibility of rightly dividing this book before people like you. He didn't even know you. <laughs> but, but now, because it's been that long, and, 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 and I've seen the fruit of, of the Spirit of God in, in their lives, I'm very comfortable and I'm very excited about what the future of this church holds. And so I, I do think that even though, look at verse 2, no teacher is perfect. We understand that. No one is perfect. But if, and let me speak to now you three elders, if you can control your tongue, you will continue to be able to lead this congregation in the way that God wants you to. And, and, and I want to encourage you to make sure that, that you do that. But again, pastors, it always begins with what you desire the most. Ministry can be difficult. Don't lose your desire for Christ. Don't lose your desire for the gospel. If you maintain that as first and foremost, what comes out of your mouth will continue to edify this church. And church, you'll know when they begin to lose that because you'll begin to hear it. And so pray for them. Don't forget to pray. The teachers of God's word need prayer. Now, I want to tell you that the ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ. As always, James and every other passage of scripture is simply there to help us to think more about Jesus. And in one of my favorite passages of scripture and something that helped me so much when, when I was a young pastor was how Jesus dealt with his suffering on the cross. First Peter chapter 2, and, 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 and Peter is, is reflecting when Christ was suffering, and Peter, just the night before, had failed with his mouth, didn't he? I mean, he really failed with his communication because he denied the Lord. And now Peter's reflecting on when Jesus was suffering, and Peter knew that was an innocent man suffering on the cross, and all these people were lying about him. They were saying things about him that weren't true. They were insulting him over and over and over again. And this is what Peter said. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. 
And when he was reviled or, or insulted, he did not revile or he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now that last phrase is the book of James. What Jesus believed about God resulted in his choice not to say anything when he was accused falsely. What did he believe? He believed he could trust his heavenly father. He believed his heavenly father was a good judge. He believed that one day his heavenly father would judge justly. His greater desire was not to say, that's a lie, I'm not like that. His greater desire was to be quiet, to receive the suffering, to trust his God, his heavenly father, and, and to bring him glory even on the cross. So there is a perfect example of what James is trying to teach us. And obviously, Jesus give, gives evidence of what he believes and what he desires, and he shows us a mature faith. If we could just even come close to that, we'd be all right. <laughs> okay, so then, teachers, a controlled and a gracious tongue is essential for you in your leadership. Now, everyone, listen. Let's go to verse 3 all the way to 12. A controlled and a gracious tongue is essential in speaking life into one another. Now, James is going to give us some illustrations. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Uh, so then, verse 5, also the tongue, very small, yet it boasts of great things, and how great a forest is set ablaze by such a fire. So a faith-controlled tongue can do a lot of good. But an out-of-control tongue can do a lot of damage. It's sort of like, you know, a, a horse. Horses are very impressive to me. When I was a young boy, I grew up in a city, but my grandfather on my mother's side uh, worked a chicken farm, and he had an old workhorse. This thing was massive. It was so big, literally, that as a child, when I sat on it, my legs went out this way. I couldn't even get my legs around it. And my grandfather would let us sit on the horse, and it would just sort of walk in circles. I was a little intimidated, never being on an animal that big before, and, and the, my grandfather said, come on, sit on this horse, and my grandfather went to go off whatever he was going to do, and, and the horse decided not to go in a circle, but actually to leave the farm. It saw the gate was open, and I'm sitting there, and my legs are out just like that. I'm just a little kid, and on this huge beast, and uh, I don't know how to control it. And the horse just slowly walks down the driveway, turns left, and starts walking down this dirt road. And I thought we were going to wherever. I was dead. I just was convinced. And it was probably two minutes, seemed like two hours to me. Grandpa came riding up on his old farm tractor, and, and, and he says, what are you doing? Why did you let the horse out? I'm like, <laughs> then he showed me, you know, there's something in his mouth that you can control. And so he gave me a little lesson. But, but, but there's that one little thing can control a massive, strong animal. It's like a ship. I mean, a massive ship can be controlled, steered simply by a rudder. The same applies with your tongue. There is great potential for good. There is great potential for evil. 
based on the use of our tongues. Our tongues can be incredible tools used for God's glory. They can be deadly weapons. And and so then a controlled tongue becomes a sign of real faith. Because a controlled tongue means that there is control inside. That there is spirit control or self-control, which is a part of the fruit of the spirit. And a controlled tongue then gives evidence to spiritual maturity and, uh, and spiritual strength. So now, think about it. When was the last time you lashed out with your tongue and you hurt somebody? When was that? Yesterday? The day before? When was the last time something came out that you wish you could grab and stuff back in your mouth? I mean, it happens to me all too often. And, 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 and what do you feel like when out it comes and now it's out? And it now wounds a person. And you go, ah, why do I do that? You, you have experienced that both in you wounding someone else and in being wounded. When was the last time where someone said something to you and honestly, it just pierced you? And it really hurt. And you just don't, you know, you're thinking, why would you say something like that? Don't you know how much that hurts? I mean, so you, we've all experienced the wounds of a tongue are much greater than any physical wounds. The tongue indeed is powerful. That's why James is going to bring up this concept time and time again, that how we use our tongues, how we control our speech reveals the extent of our faith. Remember James 1.19? Everybody should be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak. That's right, and slow to anger. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he's religious but cannot bridle his tongue, he's simply deceiving what? His heart. All right, remember, this is what I've been trying to teach you. It all begins from the heart, what you value to what you believe to what you think to what you do. And you can think you're religious But if you can't control your tongue, then there's something going on in your heart. All right, let's go to verse 6 now, and 7 and 8. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's a reference to the spiritual nature of what the Christian deals with. There's always a a battle that takes place that wages in the Christian. A spiritual battle between God or Christ and our adversary who represents hell, all right? So that's simply bringing up the spiritual nature of that by saying it's set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So so here begins another illustration of a fire, a raging fire, which can be started by the smallest spark. And, uh, And I don't know, we still use this terminology, at least I do. If I get angry or if I get out of control and out comes something, just that's angry, and, and, and my wife, who's always there, who's good and gracious, to check me and say, hey, how you doing? And, and I might say, oh, he set me off. 
Oh, she set me off. And then my wife, who's always good and gracious, might say, um, I don't think you're applying what you teach. <clears throat> Another person can't set you off. You have to ignite the spark yourself, you know, type of thing. And then I'll be like, Err. Why did you give me this woman <laughs> to tell me the truth so that you could convict my heart? The spark's in there, right? He can't set you off. She can't set you off. You set yourself off because of your sin, your sin nature. The spark is in there. Now, the spark can, phew, fires can be helpful, <laughs> Or they can be destructive. So it depends on how you use the spark. But, but remember, if you read this rightly, there's no one on the outside that can tame you. There's no one on the outside that can tame your tongue. That has to be done from the inside out. There's no one who can make you angry. There's no one who can make you mad. You know, I've heard that before. He makes me so angry. She makes me so angry. No, the reality is you're choosing to be. You want to be. Because that's how we work from what's in it simply comes out. So, so then see the potential danger so that you might then know how to control that. Look at verse 6. A world of sin? That's a strong word. That's a strong phrase. A world of unrighteousness? Uh, because our, our words will reveal whether or not we are righteous or unrighteous or, or being righteous or unrighteous. It can stain the entire body because what we communicate really then defines who we are. People will define you by how you speak. You will, you're constantly giving an impression. And the words that you use are impressive in how people think about you. Think about as a Christian the impact of the gospel in relation to that. It, it, it can set life on fire if it's out of control. It, 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 it can, you know, our words, when it talks about this fire being set by hell, your words can, can actually become an advocate of Satan, or your words can be used as an ambassador of Christ. You can go either way here. And of course, we want for our words to be used in such a way where, where we are seen and, and being used of God as an ambassador of Christ. So be careful of this restless evil. Be careful of this deadly poison. Be careful. Now, there are many animals that can be tamed. There are some that you ought not to try to tame. Our tongues are, are things that, that someone from the outside cannot tame. Now, to be honest, so I'm a little intimidated by horses, but the, when I read this, James, I always think about monkeys. Because I hate monkeys. I just got to be honest with you. I, I think like monkeys are the most satanic of all animals. I really do. I mean, they're like little devil animals. I mean, they're just, they're like, got little people like faces. But I know there's nothing but evil inside those monkeys. Well, I'm not kidding you because they're always scheming. And the devil's a schemer, right? Monkeys are always scheming. So that's satanic. He, 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 the monkeys come as nice and friendly, but then you, you know, you get too close and they rip your face off. So I know that that's like the devil. And, and, and when I watched the Planet of the Apes, I was convinced that, that that's true. 
Because there is a monkey plot. I'm not lying. I'm believing this. There is a monkey plot. Don't try to tame a monkey. You're, you're just a fool. Well, neither. You're a fool if you try to tame another person's tongue. I mean, even as a parent, I can't tame my kids' tongues. I have to trust God. I have to try to lead by example. I have to try to teach. But ultimately, that has to happen by, by a working from the inside out. We have the potential to bless or to curse one another with what we say. All right, let's look at the last four verses, 9 through 12. So with our communication, with our speech, we, we can bless our Lord and Father, or with it we can curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Isn't that interesting? I mean, even the worst of individuals, the worst person you can think of is still a person made in the, in the image and the likeness of God. So why do you curse them? Why can't you entrust them to God, right? Because you think, man, this person deserves the abuse from my mouth. No, they don't. Let God deal with that. Anybody made in the image of God is deserving of the honor and the love that we've been given as we communicate with them because maybe that's exactly what they need to respond to the gospel as we have responded to the gospel. So we can bless or we can curse. From the same mouth can come blessing or cursing. Remember that tree model again? You can either end up with godly fruit that comes out of your heart or ungodly fruit out of the same mouth. But it all depends on what's going on in your heart, what's going on with your thoughts, what's going on with what you believe and with what you desire. Does a spring pour, uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a, a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a, a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, now the contrast that James is speaking of here is that again, everything that, that depends on what's on the inside. If I'm walking in the spirit, if then I'm displaying the, the, the love of God and, and the fruit of the spirit is coming out, okay, Godliness, righteousness. But if I'm being selfish, and if I'm being motivated by my selfish ambition, then my thoughts, my behaviors, my action, that comes out. Our words simply reveal our faith, all right? So now, imagine again sort of this tree, and, and now you got to ask the question, what's been feeding into the roots that's forming your desires informing your beliefs. It can be sin, your, your sort of the, the, the sin nature that you have. Sin equates to death, <laughs> kind of like a poison seeping into the roots of the tree. And if that's the case, then that's going to form your beliefs. And listen, if you start believing wrongly, it will affect your thoughts. And if you're thinking wrongly, it will affect your behaviors and it will affect your words. The other opportunity is to allow the spirit of God and the truth of God. Truth equates to life. So we can feed life into the roots of the tree. That will then form our beliefs. And, 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 and then our desires, you see, which now are for God or for Christ, help us to, to believe rightly, to think rightly, 
and to behave rightly. So, so with our words, we can speak death or we can speak life. Now, let me sort of tie this together so that I can give you some, some things to, to hang on to and begin to work out. Because ultimately, you know, James has, has, has written this so that we as believers can work out our faith. And it is important, not just to James, it's important to Christ that, that our words represent him and imitate him. All right, so how do you tame your tongue? Eight things. First, you've got to desire God more. If, if your heart desires God more, and when I say more, I mean more than anything else, godly speech will follow. If your greater desire is yourself, self-seeking, self-promotion, often people, you know, just a lot of evil or corrupt things come out of their mouth because they're trying to protect themselves. And, and, and I don't know what it is. You're self-seeking, you're self-protecting, you're self-promoting. If that's your greater desire, then what comes out of your mouth will be selfish. And often that is hurtful to others. You have to desire God more. Second, you have to believe that your words have power. You, you, you can't just say something and say, oh, psh, I didn't mean that. You know, right, we do that. We say something, someone's offended, and then our, our immediate response is, oh, come on, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to hurt you. But you did. And you've got to take ownership of that. If, if, if I say something hurtful, and then I say, oh, come on, I didn't mean that, what, I, what I'm doing wrongly is I'm not believing rightly. I have to believe that my words are powerful. And if they are powerful, I'm responsible with that power. So I must believe that words have power and that they have potential. Therefore, I have to be responsible in what comes out. Third, resist the temptation to react. Remember, we're not uh, complete yet. And, and, and God's still got a lot of work to do in all of our lives. And so there's still some sin nature that needs to be put off. There's still a lot of Jesus that needs to be to put on, right? So it's, it's all of us have the potential of reacting sinfully at any moment, at any time. Prone to wonder, oh Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We sang that today. Take my heart, God. Take and seal it. Why? Because my heart can really result in some things that hurt other people. I've got to resist the temptation just to react. The first thing that comes to my mind may not be the godly thing. Stabs of sarcasm, angry words, bitter words reveal your sin and your insecurity, complaining and arguing, bragging, all of these things are things that we need to control, that we need to put off so that we can put on Christ and speak like Christ. All right, four. We must avoid words that tear down. Ephesians 4 and 29, 
It says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Nothing that would tear another person down. Sometimes you think, man, this person really needs to hear this. No, they don't. No, they don't. A person never needs to hear something that that will tear them down, especially if it would affect their heart or tear down their soul. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is edifying. That means to build each other up. So five, choose words that build up each other's faith. All right? Now that's important. Now I'm not talking about flattery. I'm not saying, oh man, that's a pretty shirt. Uh, I'm not saying, well, you really smell nice today. All right, that's fine. That's That's not helping. I want to choose words that will build up another person's faith. Now, sometimes that can be a word that, if I speak the truth in love, can pierce a little bit. That's all right. As long as the person knows I love them and my desire really is to build them up, then so be it. Because I want, I want that person to grow up. And I want to grow up in faith. So we must speak words, choose words that build up each other's faith. This is really the law of Christ, the royal law that James talks about, working itself out, loving our neighbor as ourself, treating others in the same way we want to be treated. All right, five. As we're doing that, we can then go to six and choose grace so that we can impart life with our words. It's interesting, both in James dealing with this, Ephesians 4, Colossians chapter 3, it, it, it says, when you speak, be gracious. Be gracious. Now, what is grace? That's when we get what we don't deserve, all right? So, again, I'm a classic example of this because there's been so many times where I have been corruptive or harmful with my words to my wife, and then she could say, hey, ouch, I didn't deserve that. I'm not your enemy. But she has instead given me grace. And, and, and by giving me grace, she has said something to me that I didn't deserve. Like, I love you, honey. Everything okay, you know? And, and, and of course, she's thinking, because, man, you just really hurt me with what you just said. <laughs> But, but listen, as believers, there's always room for grace. Always. And, and if there's maybe one thing that, if you forget everything else that I say, don't forget that. When you're talking with somebody, always leave room for grace. Always. Trust God to convict the Spirit of God to do His work. We must choose grace. Grace imparts life. Life helps us to grow. Seven, then, prefer to listen rather than to speak. I think just one of the hallmarks of maturity is when you just choose to listen and you just close your mouth. Don't say it. Don't be the first to speak. Don't feel like you have to. Just listen. Listen means love. I think one of the great needs of people that are lost is someone to listen to them. I have found that some of my best evangelistic opportunities have been not when I said something, 
But when I just listened, and in listening, this person realized I care, and then in caring, they invited me then to speak. So sometimes you just need to wait for the invitation and just be a good listener. And then finally, when you speak, speak on behalf of Christ to one another. We are his ambassadors. When we speak, let's speak for Jesus. Proverbs 15, 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. This is what God wants you to be. A strong tree from your desires, from your values, to your beliefs, to your thoughts, to your actions. Speak life, not death, not destruction. Now, this may be one of the most difficult things that we have to control in the Christian life, our tongues. But we can do it, and we need to. And as a result, we will see great gospel growth in our lives and in the lives of others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we submit our lives to you, we want to submit our tongues to you today. And in, in, in all types of speech, private, public, in our relationships, at work, um, in our homes, in our small groups, in all ways, Lord, help us to be ambassadors of Jesus. Help us to choose life. Help us to impart grace as we communicate. Spirit of God, please help us. And Father, if there's someone here today who, who doesn't know Jesus in a saving way, and maybe they've been wrestling with a lot of things, a lot of anxiety, a lot of trouble, maybe now they realize there's something deep inside me that must change. And maybe that that needs to change is what they really believe about you. And I pray that in receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, they would recognize this is where it all begins. So, Father, please, for those who are struggling, help them to keep coming to Redemption Hill. For those who don't have a church home, I pray that they would consider Redemption Hill as a church home. Father, I pray that, that some of these people who are really struggling would reach out to one of these elders, one of these pastors, one of these small group leaders this week for care and for love. And, Father, bless this church, I pray. I pray that it would become a lighthouse in the Medford area. I pray it would become a lighthouse in the greater Boston era. Father, uh, what you've done in the last three years has been amazing. Please, 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 Father, I pray, continue it for many, many years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.